The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times, or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. Welcome again to the Tabernacle. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and my heart is full of gratitude. As you heard mentioned, we had kind of a big weekend last week. Not a kind of, it was a big weekend. It was big, yeah. And uh, I have the privilege to, to give you the final number, which seems to not be final. Even it continues to go, people continue to give uh, to the big give. And if you're here for the first time, uh, no, we're not a church that's just all about money, but every Thanksgiving we do uh, a special offering outside of what we normally uh, give in gratitude to God. And we use that outside of our budget for some big push for the kingdom. And uh, the first one was to help build this building. The second was to help launch a campus in Manistee. And this year it's actually to finish phase one of the building that we've purchased in Manistee to get that part of our church going. So some of us are still into the that other church. No, it's one church, two locations. Don't make me make you repeat that out loud. We might though, right? One church, two locations. So it's our church. But regardless, um, God just continues to bless and um, through the generous giving of his people. And so as of last night, and like I said, it might continue to go up because people are still giving to it. Uh, the number is $237,552.89. And that, that's just ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We're not boasting in us. We boast in the Lord. We boast in the Lord. That here in flyover country, in the land of misfit toys, in 2018, we'd hold an offering that would raise almost a quarter of a million dollars. That's just awesome. That's awesome. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our board members, he's, he's a friend of mine, was saying, uh, as he saw the number going up and up and up, he was like, John, he goes, I got to admit, when we were hoping and praying for 150, I was like, oh, John's going to be disappointed. And I want to say that I am disappointed. I'm not disappointed what came in, because it exceeded anything we could ask or imagine. I'm disappointed that my faith was so little. It was so little. So would you bow your heads with me? We're going to thank God right now because he's worth it and he's listening. So let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's not more words to express our gratitude. We thank you for the way you've blessed our church, not just with this offering, but with the people, with the hearts that have been touched and have been changed and continue to respond to you. God, thank you that this is not about just our church and just about our experience, but that God, you've given us a vision uh, to continue to advance your kingdom. And however you see fit, help us to be faithful and obedient, to be good stewards. We don't know what it means that you would bless us with this, but God, we're going to do our best to use it in a way that would be honoring and pleasing to you. So God, thank you. We give you praise for it. And it's in your son's, Jesus, in his name that we pray. And church, if you agree, say amen. 
Sweet. If you have a Bible, please open it to Mark chapter 5. We're continuing our journey through this gospel. And while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry, put the words on the screen. But I want to remind you that anytime you're reading a gospel, and I'm speaking of the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, that a gospel is exactly that. It's a gospel. It's not a biography, right? So some of us are like, there's a lot of details left out of this biography. It's not a biography. It's a gospel, And it's written with a specific purpose. And each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are just a little bit different. And they're written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why we say things like there's no wasted words here. They're written with the purpose that we would believe. That we would believe. And not just believe, that we would be changed. Right? Because that's what the gospel does. It's an account of the gospel, which is embodied in Jesus Christ, God's Son. He came on this earth on a mission to save us. He came on a mission to earth to show us what love looks like, that we might believe. So we just don't want to hear the word. We want to hear the word with the purpose of doing the word. That's what faith is going to look like. And so just as a little review, if you remember where we were in the story, is that Jesus had crossed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is really a very, very large lake. And on that side, he had met a demoniac and had set this man free. He had delivered him of these demons. And we don't know exactly how many, but the demon called itself Legion because we are many. And the demons begged to be sent into a herd of pigs. And then these pigs, when the demons went in them, we see the demon pigs hurtling over the cliff. Remember that one? Which is just an epic story. We won't re-preach that right now. But that's that sin and that shame. And we all have our demon pig story. And Jesus had said to that man when he begged to go with him, no, you can't go with me, but go and tell your friends everything that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been to you. And so that's where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, and we'll start in verse 21 because his day is not over. It says that Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Now we've got to pause right there because this is interesting, if not ironic, that it says he was a leader of the synagogue. Other translations, he was a synagogue ruler which means he's got administrative governance duties within the synagogue or the church. So quite often in the Gospels, we see the religious leaders, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the synagogue rulers, they're usually pitted against Jesus because he's a threat to them. They don't believe he's the Messiah. And so this is almost a theme through all the Gospels that the church people, the religious people, specifically the ministry staff people, they don't see Jesus for who he is. And we don't know all the story about Jairus, but we know from this account that we don't get to put all the religious leaders and just lump them into one category. Maybe this Jairus was in the synagogue that time that Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Maybe he had been against Jesus. Maybe he was a doubter. You know, he felt the pressure of everyone else. You know, don't, this guy, he's just a rabble rouser and a troublemaker. He didn't go to the right schools. He's not teaching with us. He's not with us. He must be against us. Regardless, he's desperate. His little girl 
is sick, so sick she is dying and he knows it. And he finds himself, regardless of what anyone else thinks, on his knees before this rabble-rousing rabbi, pleading with him fervently, begging him. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where the only thing you could do was beg God? He's begging, come with me. People just lay hands on her. She'll live. Verse 24. Jesus went with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. Now a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors and over the years she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. And so we have this picture, and I love this picture of the crowd is pressing. This guy, Jairus, has come, and people are whispering, oh, he's a big deal. Look, he's an executive pastor at that one church, and he's believing, and he's going to go with him. Let's go. And so you have this crowd, and they're pressing. Now, I've never been at the center of a crowd like that where everyone wanted to touch me, talk to me. But I have been in the standing section of a U2 concert. And I know what that's like when everybody's just pressing and proud and it's not quite slam dancing, but it's like everyone's see Bono in his blue shades, Africa, right? Everybody's coming in close and the press and the touch and this woman, her theology's jacked up, right? It's almost superstition. She's almost believing in magic, really. But there's a shred of faith. And this issue, we don't know what it is, but she had suffered for 12 years. Have you ever been in a situation where whatever... Whatever suffering you've undergone, be it physical, emotional, relational, there's just no end in sight. And it just goes on and on and on, just as desperate as that father. Yet all she can think to do is somehow within the press, if I can just touch, maybe. And then we get this, you know, Jesus' power goes out from him. Now, Jesus is fully God and fully man. So I've struggled with this. I spent some time in the UP in a deer stand, right? Trying to figure this one out. Jesus doesn't play games with people. He had to know because he knows everything, right? Well, not necessarily because elsewhere we find out that Jesus told people he didn't know when he was coming back. Only his father in heaven knew. Oh, what do you do with that one? So he's sovereign, fully God, fully man. Maybe I should just shut up at this point. I don't know. But he turns around and says, who touched me? He knew something happened. Who touched me? And I love the humanness of his disciples in this press, in this crowd. They're like the secret service, right? They're like, hey, everybody stand back. You're going to crush him, right? And then Jesus whips around. Who touched me? And they're like, really? (laughs) Rabbi, come on. 
You're going to ask in this crowd who touched you? But undeterred, Jesus continues to look around. He's looking around. He's looking around, and then maybe their eyes locked. I don't know. But he knew. And she knew. And trembling, probably with tears, she comes forward and tells him everything. All my money. Doctors, it just was worse. I did it. I'm the guilty one that had just this much faith, and, I, and I'm healed. And Jesus tells her it was her faith that healed her. And he calls her daughter. Isn't that interesting? Nowhere else do we see that. He calls her daughter. Your suffering is over. Verse 35. While he was still speaking to her, messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. And they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I've got four daughters. I can't imagine those words. Don't bug him now. It's too late. You guys waited too long. I imagine Jairus was... I, I don't even know what he's feeling. I don't even want to speculate. That woman, we had to wait and do the thing. Verse 36. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. Just have faith. The translation is... Continue in faith. Continue. It's almost the implication is, you know, you came this far, just keep on. Verse 37. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. And this story is just incredible. It's just amazing. And it's recounted here for us to hear so we can respond. And in, 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 in this last part, I mean, I, I don't know what was going on in Jairus' mind. He'd come that far and... All he knows is the only hope he has is telling him, keep have faith. Keep on in faith. And then we get there and there's the big crowd. And I've told you before, I come from a country that has a similar cultural bent where where there's a death, there's weeping and wailing and, and they actually pay professionals to come in. That's part of the culture and it serves a purpose. So that the person that's really hurting, the mom and the dad and the family, they don't have to have everyone watching them and judging how they respond or don't respond. You bring the weepers and the wailers in and, and they kind of channel everyone's pain because there's something wrong with the world when a parent buries a child. We know this. Whether you're a Christian or not, we know there's something desperately wrong with the world when that happens. And that's not the way this world was created to be. Death wasn't a part of it. It's our first parents who invited death in when they chose 
to worship themselves instead of worship God. When they ate of the apple and their eyes were open, they were filled with shame. That's when sin and death came in and that's why those moments happen. These moments happen. That's why whatever you brought with you today, that's why it happens. Either the sin of your past, the sin where you're at right now, or the sins that others have committed against you, that's where it all came from. And so the wailers, they're wailing and and they've already started the process. The girl is lying dead in her bed and Jesus walks in and it's it's kind of out of place, right? And he's really just kind of like, why all the fuss, (laughs) right? Why all the fuss? She's not dead. She's only asleep. Well, Jesus knows she's dead. He's not being crass. He's not being cruel. But this is where the the same God-man who in one moment is saying, who touched me, also has the perspective of God in this moment. And what we see as the worst case scenario, death to him is nothing more than a nap. It's just a nap. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the eternal one. He sees all of human history at once. He says she's only asleep. And is it interesting that the crowd laughs they scoff. Psh, who's this guy? We know what dead is. You're too late. <laughs> but Jesus puts them all out. And he takes the father and the mother and three witnesses, his disciples, into the room. Takes her hand and says, Talitha kum. And the girl wakes up from death. And then he says, don't tell anybody about this and let's get her something to eat. She's going to be hungry. I love the humanness of that. She's going to be hungry. Any restrictions? No, whatever she wants. Probably mac and cheese. That would be best. Right? And they're amazed and I'm amazed. And it's this beautiful story. And I believe that there's some things in here for every single person here today. It doesn't matter your age, your gender. Here's the first thing that we see, and I think it's important for us to hear this. And this is something for us to do, and that's that Jesus responds to humble faith. Jesus responds to humble faith. He doesn't respond to proud faith because there's no such thing. In fact, the theologian in the room might be saying, I thought it was faith alone. Now it's got to be a certain kind of faith. You have to understand the only kind of faith is humble faith. Anything else is not faith. Pride's the thing that gets in our way all the time. You know, can you imagine Jairus desperate? The girl is dying and, and, and the doctors can't help. And what does he do? That rabbi. And very publicly and very openly, despite what anyone thought of him, he sets pride aside and ego and what other people think. And he's at his feet pleading, if you would just come lay your hands. That's humble faith. And that's what Jesus responds to. Jesus doesn't sit there like me and say, oh, really? I heard what you said about me. heard what you did. You've been in. Oh, you know, he doesn't go through any of those things. Humble faith is displayed. Jesus responds. Even when it looks like it's past possible, he responds to that faith that's expressed. And it's this beautiful picture. You see, we don't get to come to Jesus as a scoffer. Some of us you know, say, okay, I'll try church one time. We'll see. You better prove it. Well, you're going to be disappointed. He doesn't respond to that. Why? Because he's mean? No, because he's God. And I'm not. And you're not. And we're not. And that's the only way to approach him. 
not just in his falling and his pleading. We also see humble faith in the woman's reaching, right? Let me fill in a few blanks for you here. Because of this issue, and we don't know exactly what it was, but it was some type of continual bleeding that caused her a great deal of suffering and pain, and it wasn't getting better. Doctor after doctor, all of her savings, all of her money, no money left. All of the doctors couldn't help her. All of the world's methods fell short, and they only made it worse. And because of the issue, because it was continual bleeding, she was ceremonially unclean. That means she couldn't go to synagogue. She couldn't go to church. To touch her would make you unclean and you have to go through all this washing yourself before you would be allowed back in. So she's kind of an outcast, if not publicly, then surely by the whisper campaign. She can't even speak to Jesus in public as a woman unless he speaks to her first. But we see her and her desperation, right? There's the crowd and I don't know, maybe she's thinking, oh, this guy, his request is way more important, but this is my only shot. And without even speaking to him, she just reaches in, even in the superstition, if I just touch his clothes. And it makes me happy because her theology's wrong, but there's faith there, isn't there? Just enough. Power goes out. And then when their eyes lock, she finds herself trembling. Now she has to come out. And she says at his feet, I imagine with tears and explaining everything, almost apologetically. And he gets the, or she receives the reassuring words, daughter, your faith has healed you. Your suffering's over. Go in peace. Isn't that a beautiful picture? It's the same Jesus responding to humble faith. And on the other side, we see the scoffers. And those laughing, don't we? You see, because that's interesting. They laughed at him when he said, the girl is only asleep, she's not dead. Well, I know if it was me, and I'm glad, or aren't we all glad that I'm not Jesus? My enemies are laughing? Throw open the doors. Watch this. You're about to see something. Abracadabra, shalakazam. Here we go. I'll show you a thing or two. But he doesn't. To the scoffers, he puts them out. They don't get to see. You would think he would want them to see so they could believe. But he puts them out and the miracle of the girl being raised from the dead is only for those who had a shred of faith. Three disciples, mom and a dad, holding on to almost no hope. Why is that? Sitting in a deer stand in the UP and it just, best I can come up with is this, is that If you won't believe his word, you will never see his power. If we won't believe his word, we will never see his work. Jesus said it himself in speaking about faith. He says, he who has even more will be given to him, but he who has very little, even that will be taken away. Not because Jesus is mean, it's because you're going to forever be explaining it away. We see this all the time now. People come in with the prove it attitude. It's not humble faith. It's prove it. They're they're waiting for a magic show. They're waiting for something to explode. And even when God does something to change life, it's like, well, that's good for you, but not me. You know, I'm exempt. They'll look at the big give. And you know what they'll say? And, And there may be even some of us. Well, you know, the pastors at this church, they're brilliant manipulators. It's almost like a cult. See, they even have stickers. They're going to get tattoos next. You know, I know what they're doing. 
Yeah, you, you don't see that for a miracle. You don't see God's work and his power because you haven't believed his word. Jesus always responds to humble faith. And remember, their faith was demonstrated before the power showed up. Second thing, and maybe it's obvious, but I think it bears repeating as long as we have breath in our lungs, and that's this, is that Jesus wakes us to real life. Jesus wakes us to real life. Now, I know I could have said, well, Jesus raises us to real life, but that's Christianese, Christian ghetto. Sometimes, you know, that may have meant something a long time ago, but you know how words just tend to become part of the lingo? And, well, once I was dead, and then I prayed the prayer, and I've become, came alive. He forgave me, and I became a Christian. Well, the reality has you've been asleep for the last 40 years. (laughs) Some of us can be Christians and be asleep. We're not responding continually in humble faith. We, we only had faith for that one moment. Now somehow, just like someone who's dead in their sin, we're just kind of sleepwalking through our lives. And we don't see change that's happening. But in this story, in these little healings, we see Jesus' power not only over life and death, but over the here and now. Was that woman wake? Was she awakened to new life? 12 years of suffering, 12 years of struggle, like it's never going to end. Exhausting everything that the world had. And in that moment, if nothing else, she can go to church. She can go worship. She can be with people. She can be touched and she can touch others without contaminating. And it's not lost on us that Jesus wasn't sitting there going, really, you touched my clothes, now I'm unclean. Now I got to go through, no. No. Her uncleanness doesn't contaminate him. Or what about when he wakes the girl from death to life, showing his power over life and death, showing his power over the eternal? Do you know that should have made Jesus unclean too, and yet he didn't hesitate? You see, your uncleanness, my uncleanness, our impurity, it doesn't contaminate him. You think you're the darkest one? You haven't met the light of the world. And these people, they get new life, not just new life someday, new life, real life right now. You know, I'm a father. I've got four daughters. I can't imagine that sentence. Your little girl is dead. And then everything changes. Do you think he believed? Do you think Jairus was awakened to real life? When in our humble faith we come to Jesus, he responds. Real life is what we are awakened to. And and then probably my favorite part in this story is we see the God-man, God in flesh. Everything you want to know about God, all you have to do is look at Jesus. We see the fact that Jesus doesn't miss a thing. He doesn't miss a thing, does he? Does he? God doesn't miss anything. Some of us either consciously or subconsciously are thinking right now that my story, my issues, oh, they're not important. Other people are more important things. Other oh, food in Africa, you know, missionaries. It's just little old me and my pain. Oh, it's no big deal. I don't know. Jesus doesn't miss a thing. He knows. 
You think your guilt's too big? He knows all about it. You got issues, family of origin issues, mommy issues, daddy issues, sibling issues, abuse issues. He knows. He saw. Are you in the depths of addiction and you can't break free and you've tried everything? He knows. He doesn't miss a thing. You see, we always think that we're the exception and we forget that he's the rule. And he doesn't miss a thing. In that crowd, in that press, someone just touching the edge of his garment, who touched me? He didn't miss it. He didn't miss it. And he called her daughter. The fact that Jairus was humbling himself, he didn't miss it. And you know, and even in those two things, we had a really insightful discussion at our fight club this week. The little fight club table that I lead, you know, we have a great group of men and they're, and they're growing in faith and, they're, and we're changing in faith. And we're in a part of 1 Timothy where he's, Paul's talking about that, that men should lift up holy hands in praise and prayer in worship, right? So we had this real practical and tactical discussion about when we sing, like we just did, you know, why do some of us raise hands and some of us don't? And some of us that don't raise hands look at the guys that hands in the air and we're like, what's that guy trying to do? And, and the people with their hands in the air, well, if you're more spiritual like me. And some other people just don't care. They got their eyes. Sorry, did I go too far? I know you. I'm you, right? And this whole thing, it's like the big public display. I mean, this is like the international known symbol of surrender, is it not? And sometimes in worship, we, like Jairus, we're just at his feet. We got hands up, we're begging, we're pleading, and that's okay, and that's faith. And Jesus doesn't miss that. But you know what else he doesn't miss? Is the guy in the back whose hands are buried in his pockets. He's like the woman just, I'm here and I'm just touching right there. He doesn't miss that either. So the best thing we came up with is just don't look at each other. And if you got hands full of praise, great. And if you got pockets full of praise... That's okay too. That's okay. Jesus doesn't miss that. He looks at the heart. He looks at the heart. He didn't miss the woman. And he wasn't too late. He knew he was going to do something. He didn't miss that either. And even this last part, you know, why, why does he give strict orders not to tell anyone? before he told them to give her a bowl of mac and cheese. See, the demoniac, he said, go tell all your friends. Go tell them everything the Lord has done for you. And best explanation I've heard, the staff, and we, we were listening to a pastor, you know, cover this passage in a staff development day, and it just caught me, it arrested me. His theory, I think it's the best theory I've heard. Why did Jesus say, don't tell anyone? He was thinking about her prom. Because who would want to dance with the zombie? Right? I mean, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and everyone's going to know, but that's okay. Lazarus is a man. He can take it. This is a little girl. This is a 12-year-old little girl. She doesn't need the press. Hey, don't tell a soul. She's just a little girl on the block. Get her something to eat. Jesus doesn't miss a thing. My fear is that some of us think that he doesn't care, he doesn't see, he doesn't know, it's, he can't be bothered. You know, it says in Psalm 56, speaking about God in verse 8, 
He says, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. And I don't understand all the details of the, of, of, of the tears in a bottle. Is it literal? Is it metaphor? Is he keeping a book you know, that's keeping track of all the hurts and all the pain? He says he does. He keeps track of all the sorrows, all the pain, all the pain you've caused that causes you guilt and all the pain that's been caused to you that hurts the suffering. Has it been 12 years? Is it desperate loss? Are you asleep? He keeps track. He knows. He doesn't miss it. He doesn't miss it. And he says to all of us, Talitha kum, wake up. Wake up. My wife and I have a, a dear friend who has been struggling. She was raised in a Christian home, but just the brand of Christianity that she seemed to inherit was more of a, of a religion. Always talked about a personal relationship with God, but really God was kept at arm's length and it was more about family and more about tradition and, and even into her 30s that's followed her and she's married and has kids, but the control and what she should do and kind of conforming and, and, and God has been leading her out and breaking her free to be the woman that God's called her to be, the wife that God's called her to be, the mother that God's called her to be. And all the while, the family's like, what's wrong with you? And it's a push and shove, and it's this huge battle. And, you you know, it's not big and out there like if there was some kind of addiction or some type of abuse, but it's control and it's insidious. She's been in counseling and spiritual directors. And I I just want to read you part of this very long text that she sent to us. Said, I was not at church last weekend, but I listened to the sermon today, and I had a lump in my throat and my heart hurt as I listened because I realized about the demon pigs that this is my family. I am the outcast in their eyes and and I've changed. They can see this, but they don't understand and so they see it as bad and they pull farther away from me so much that I don't even know them anymore. They're like strangers I see on the streets. I was taught all my life to talk to God And that you can have a relation with him. But that it was always something that was an arm's length away. I was running to him all the time. He was always there. And when I finally found it, I find I am being criticized for how I have changed. I'm trying to figure out how to change my focus away from them to keep family at arm's length and God closest. And that doesn't make sense to them because for them it is backwards. Family means more to them than God. This week's scripture says, holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. I feel like I am that girl and he's taking my hand and helping me get back up every time I let family get in my head. When I don't have the energy to get up and take the next hit that's coming, he says to me, my little girl, get up. I am with you and you can lean on me. Have you ever felt that way? I don't know what you brought. I don't know what weighs on you. And if it's not weighing on you now, maybe it will soon. But we know this, is that if when we come to Jesus, he always responds to humble faith. And whether you're reaching through the crowd for a little bit of the clothes or whether you're 
on your feet, begging and pleading. He sees both of it. And he wants to wake all of us to new life. You know, those words, it's interesting in Mark's gospel that it's recorded Talitha kum because that's Aramaic. The gospel's written in Greek. And it just gives us that authenticity, right? Well, Aramaic... It's not Hebrew, it's not Greek, it's the vernacular of the day. It's the lingo, it's the language of the the local province. It's what Jesus grew up talking with his parents and as he was a carpenter and with his disciples. It's like speaking youper. Eh? But it's intimate and it's familiar and it's familial and it's probably better translated, not little girl arise, Little girl, get up. It's the same way I would wake my daughter and do. Taking her hand, he says, wake up, sweetheart. Wake up, sweetheart. Time to get up. Isn't that a beautiful picture of who Christ is? He sees. He knows. He doesn't miss a thing. Whether you're on your knees or you're reaching through, he's saying, sweetheart, wake up. And for the guys in the room who are struggling with that, okay, wake up, little buddy. I'm not little, I'm a grown man. He's a for real God. So to him, you're just a little buddy. (laughs) Same message. Wake up, little buddy. Wake up. Wake up, sweetheart. Talitha kum. And his power, which invades, it's the power over here and now. It's not just a power to save us from hell. Talitha kum. For us, I think that's the here and do. Would you bow your heads with me? I believe there's some people here that you've never become a Christian and you've been asleep your whole life. And the fact that there's power, there's a for real God that you can turn your life over to, your sin, your shame, your pain, and that he can heal. If you have a shred of faith, you can become a Christian today. You don't even need 20 seconds of courage. You need a millisecond that says yes. And the power will go out. And if your faith is genuine, you'll be changed. You'll be awakened. Chances are there's some of us here today that you've been a Christian for a long time, but you're still asleep. Maybe you've been asleep in your suffering. You can't see anything else. Maybe you've been asleep in apathy. Maybe it's been relational. Maybe it's been hurt. The church is spectacular at hurting people. I know it. I never said we wouldn't do it. And if it's not our church, maybe it's someone else or some, some other church or someone in the church. He, he says to you too, wake up, little bro. Hey, buddy. Time to wake up. Hey, sweetheart. It's time to wake up. He didn't miss it. He kept track of all of it. And it's available. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I wonder if you'd ask God right now, God, what are you saying to me? We believe God's spirit will speak better than any of us could. We've heard his word. God, what are you saying? And then secondly, maybe you'd ask God right now, God, what do you want me to do with this? Even if it's responding with humble faith, it's time. And sometimes 
faith is turning your life to Christ. Sometimes it's turning to obedience. Maybe it's turning to asking for help for the very first time. It's time. That's faith too. This woman and this man came to Jesus for help and we can come to Jesus or the church or to a counselor or to a ministry person. Maybe it's confessing sin. I need help. That's humble faith. God, we've heard your word. I pray right now that you'll help us to do your word. That we would not walk away saying, oh, good story. But that we would be changed. That we would be hearers and doers. That you would speak and also tell us what the next step is. And you don't have to give us the whole plan, but would you give us enough that we would know the next move? All of this, God, for your glory for your glory and our joy. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being with us today. And I want to reassure you, I don't know why I'm, I didn't do this in the other ser- services, but I want to reassure you one more time that he doesn't miss a thing. He never misses a thing. You're not invisible. I miss things. Went to the UP last week for deer camp. What did I do? I'm the only guy that goes to deer camp in the UP and forgot his long johns. (laughs) We're going to miss things. You're going to miss things. Jesus doesn't miss a thing. And he cares. So we love you. God bless you. We hope to see you next time. Let's be doers of the word and not just hearers.